back to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. This is Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. 25th of December is not just Christmas Day. On this day in 1066, William the Conqueror was crowned and became the first Norman king of England. His life and kingship are very well documented. So today we are focusing on the women of the Norman Conquest and how their lives were changed with the coronation of William I. To do this, we welcome Sharon Bennett Connolly, author of many books about medieval women, including Silk and the Sword, The Women of the Norman Conquest. Welcome, Sharon. We want to kind of uh, have a lot of discussion on William the Conqueror's coronation, but Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about a lot lot about the women as well, because I love that about your books, that you focus on the women, because, I mean, the market is saturated with books on William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest and the Anglo-Saxons, but you just get a little mention of the women, and they actually played a huge part. They did, and they did in everything. You know, in every era, the women were there. It's just they get overlooked so often, and it's not fair. (laughs) <laughs> no, definitely not. Even when they're talking about, oh, they just they just had babies. Well, that's a huge part. If they didn't have their babies, you would not be here. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like um, my big bugbear at the minute is um, they had this thing. 2020 was the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim Fathers going over to America. And my thing is, yeah, you know there were mothers as well, because if there weren't <laughs> yeah. mothers, they weren't going to last long out there. <laughs> so they're still called the Pilgrim Fathers and the Founding Fathers. And it's... That's the kind of thing now that we need to actually clamp down on and say, look, there were women there as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So what are the challenges when you're researching medieval women? The main challenge is they don't get talked about, even at the time. So you... um, in the chronicles and that they get mentioned, not elaborated on. So you sort of have to work out what they would have been doing by what their husbands were doing or what their fathers were doing. I was writing about one yesterday who she was a little later on she was the sister of Nicola de la Haye who is one of the other books I've written about and everything I wrote was she was probably born in the 1150s she probably married in the <laughs> late 1160s maybe early 1170s she probably had her first child in the 1180s and she died sometime in the 1190s and it's like Nobody wrote down when these women were born, how when they lived and when they died. And it's just, it's so annoying (laughs) because you you work it out based on they probably married in their late teens because that's what most of them did, Hmm. you know, especially on in the aristocracy. And so you have to work it out from there or when their sons were born, because sometimes you do get mention of sons being born. And in a way you understand it because in childhood was a very dangerous time in those days so they didn't always write down when the children were born because they're more like some of them would have died by the time they wrote it down but at the same time it's just like really infuriating because it's mainly the women that you don't get anything about it's like so let me grab my pen oh wait no he's dead okay let's not bother <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a girl, never mind. Yes, okay. <laughs> She's not going to do anything with her life except get married, have children and die. Yeah. <laughs> so what sources did you use when you were writing this book? With Silk and the Sword, luckily there are loads of sources online. I, I tend to I use chronicles more than anything. Audric Vitalis, Henry of Huntingdon, the Hyde Chronicle. 
you know, there's just loads of chronicles online that have, they're a brilliant source of information. Although you do have to remember they're all biased. Yeah. And they're all writing because they're all biased because somebody paid for them to write this or they're English chronicles or they're Norman chronicles. So some are going to put William the Conqueror in a good light and some are going to put King Harold in a good light. But it's great because when you're writing nonfiction, you don't actually have to decide on one source. You can use them all. You can say William Jumiers wrote this and Audrey Vitalis wrote this. And, you know, so you can you can just put all the information out there and say, well, I think this might have happened or we really can't tell what's happened because everybody's so in such a disagreement. Oh, and there's the um, Bayer Tapestry as well, which is the visual mm. source for the um, conquest and which is excellent. It's such a long, it's actually, you don't realise how unique it is until you realise you haven't got images from any other time period except, you know, just artwork of painted pictures of people but nothing like this that tells the entire story even though it only has three women in it (laughs) (laughs) there's more mythical beasts than there are women in the Bayer tapestry Oh, it's the fact of the day. That's day yeah. right there. Yeah, it's a story in itself. Just finding things like that out, you're like, of course, that's why people never wrote about women's history before. Because you can't, there it isn't there to actually write about. You have to hunt. It's not just, it's not all on the surface and just there to be done. You actually have to work to find it. Yeah. You get sometimes somebody complains that you haven't got enough information and it's like, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I can't make it up. So I can do all I can do is present what I have got. I was going to say that because if you read a review on any kind of a book about a medieval woman, you always get the same people saying things like all she talked about was the husband and not the actual woman and all they mm. all they talked about was a uh, um, things that had nothing to do with that actual woman or they just assumed things or it was probably yeah. this and probably that but that's basically all you have to write about well working from that i mean i think i don't think i put it in the forward in the um forward for silk and the sword but in every other introduction i've done after that since silk and the sword i've actually just put on the end this is a book about the women but i'm not taking them out of context so the men are in there as well. And that's what I did with Silk and the Sword. Yes, there was a lot about the men in there, but why wouldn't there be? It's not the idea of doing it about the women on their own. It's, it's putting the women back in the history, back yeah. in the story, yeah. rather than taking them out and looking at them separately. Mm-hmm. You put them back in so that you're saying, this is what William the Conqueror was doing. At the same time, this is what Matilda Flanders was doing. You know, yeah. William was in... England fighting the Battle of Hastings, Matilda was in Normandy as acting as regent while William was there. So you can't tell the story of one without the other. You have to have the men in there as well because they make up the whole of the story. And that's what it, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to say, you know, women did things that we don't know, you know, that they did more than the men. They didn't. They were 50% of the whole. Yeah. You know, they're 50% of the population and they did 50% of the work in a different way. But it's putting them back in the story rather than taking the men out. We, we shouldn't really be keeping women and men apart, kind of a thing to make no, like exactly. his, Yeah. They should be together in one story. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the real <laughs> history. If you take the women out, which we have done for a thousand and more years, you're not giving people the full history. You know, if you don't say what the women are doing, then 
that's not the history. That isn't what happened. If you just put the women in and take the men out, it's not the history either. It's trying to balance it. Try, it. The idea is to change the focus so that you're looking at things from the women's point of view, mm. but still have the men in there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that play a part, the men. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk about them sometimes. We do have to talk about them. <laughs> um, I do say when I do a talk, I do think women did more than they're credited with in the Chronicles anyway. Mm. As, as, I couldn't imagine me being there and keeping my mouth shut and not telling, suggesting to my husband things to do and how yeah. to do things properly once he's tried it the wrong way and things like that. Just, you know, women would have been very much a part of the family decisions and mm-hmm. raising the children where the focus is, where the man's loyalties lie. He's not going to go and say, oh, I'm for Harold, you know, as a Norman. If she's turned around and said, you need to be for William, they're going to discuss it. You know, so women had influence. They just had to be more subtle. They would tell their husbands, you know, <laughs> in bed at night <laughs> when they have that chat before they go to sleep. Who's the folk going to listen to? He's going to listen to the wife who, you know, he wants a comfortable home. He wants to come home and feel happy and contented. He's going yeah. to consider his wife's feelings. Yeah, happy wife, happy life. It's true, though, because when you think about it, they lived maybe over a thousand years ago, but things don't change relationships don't change that much no. they really don't and when it gets down to it women and men have the are probably more alike today and then than we think mm. so i mean i know my other half can't do anything without me now literally anything he can't find anything without me in the house he cannot Definitely can't remember things <laughs> even if it's right in front of them they can't find it exactly <laughs> So I, I'm, I can imagine, I can imagine just being the same back then. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that sword? <laughs> what did I put yeah. that again? When I was reading the book and when you read about medieval women's lives, the marital status is completely different. It's really confusing. It's not what we think of marriage nowadays. People had different relationship roles. It was more like a business transaction. I mean, they did feel love in those days, but marriage wasn't about affection. It was about progressing the family. You married somebody who, well, you married your daughter to somebody who could give advantage to your family or who lived on adjacent lands. It was more, it was alliances rather than about love. But at the same time, nobody wanted a marriage to fail. So it wasn't, oh, I'm going to marry you to him. I know he's horrible and you're not compatible, but it suits me. Nobody wants to do that. They want to marry their children to somebody who will make the child happy, who can work with their child so that they advance together and so that they advance up the social ladder and things like that, you know. But it's a part of but they want the the couple to be in a partnership, to have the same aims and be heading in the same direction. So it's probably actually more complicated than just, I love you, I love you, let's get married. It's, <laughs> okay, I like you, I think we can get on, all right then. Financially, we're on a par, so, you know, we're even on the social status. I would like to one day rule a country. Oh, yes, me too. Okay, then let's get married. <laughs> you do see, you do look at it and you think, at the first, you just think if they take love out of it, then it's really a horrible way to do it. But at the same time, 
it is more practical and marriages were successful. You know, yeah. you look at William the Conqueror, Matilda of Flanders, they had something like 10 children. There's one reference to an affair, which sounds like somebody actually trying trying to cause trouble because um, the actual reference suggests that Matilda of Flanders found out and killed the girl by whipping her with a horse whip. She wasn't that kind of woman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then William the Conqueror killed Matilda of Flanders. And it's like, well, no, she died of an illness. You know, the story <laughs> just falls apart. So you just look at it and you think, actually, they worked really well together. She acted as regent in Normandy when he wasn't it when he was in England. She raised the children. They did have a bit of an argument over the eldest son because William and his eldest son, Robert, didn't get on. Mm. He was banished from court at one stage and Matilda was sending him money. <laughs> as you do, you know, just because you're not getting on with your dad. I'm still going to send you money. Yeah. Making sure it was all right. So... You just look at things like that and you think, actually, they did think long and hard about who they married their children to and how well, you know, how compatible they were. Didn't always work, but most of the time it did. Alongside marriage, they also had something that's quite different for English people now is hand fasting. Um, <laughs> in Scotland, it's still quite popular, but in England, it's um, a wee bit different. Can you tell us about hand fasting? It is an ambiguous situation, hand fasting. You see it. An awful lot now they call it hand fasting. But in the early history books, it's, they, they would say that she was the concubine, you know, and that there wasn't an actual marriage. But from what we can tell, it was this idea of Mordanico, a Danish marriage, which meant that it wasn't in a church. They just made swore to each other that they were married and that they would live together as husband and wife. The problem with this was because it wasn't in a church, the church didn't recognise it. So when a more advantageous bride came along, basically the bloke could forget he was married and decide to marry again. <laughs> and I mean, when you look at the 1066 story, there's King Canu who died in 1035. He had two wives. He was handfasted to one, Elfgitha of Northampton, and he was married to Emma of Normandy. Harold II had two wives. Edith the Fair or um, Edith Swanneck was the one who he was handfasted to. Mm. But then once he became king, it seemed it was more suitable for him to marry Edith of Mercia. So he did. And he didn't have to divorce Edith Swanneck because they hadn't actually been married in a church. And you've got Harold Hardcrowder, king of Norway, who was in the 1066 story but was killed at Stamford Bridge. He'd married Ellis of Kiev. They'd only had two daughters. So then he married Thora, who was Tyra, sorry, who had gave him two sons. He brought one wife with him and left her in, on Orkney while he came to battle and left the other one in Norway and Denmark acting as regent. You'd think it, it was a lot more common than you would mm. have expected it to be. I don't think it would be useful if they met, though. No, I don't think so. It must so, have been a tad awkward at times. You know? Yeah. Edith um, Swanneck was at the Battle of Hastings, apparently. So she was the one who stayed at the side of the battlefield waiting for the outcome. Whereas his church wife, call her that, Edith, had been sent north to Chester to safety because she was possibly pregnant at the time. 
So it was like, okay, I'll keep eat this swan neck with me and send the other one north to safe. Oh, yeah. you're not sending me to safety. I can imagine. You can yeah. imagine this one neck going, oh, you're not sending me to safety. That's not fair, is it? And the other no. one going, oh, but you're keeping her with you. <laughs> How's that going to work? Harold in the middle going, I don't know why I did this. <laughs> I bet she regretted it. If we go before 1066, Emma of Normandy is really amazing. She manages to be massive multicultural and really important historical figure mm-hmm. um, across the three nations that are all fighting for England, basically. How did she become so important and how is she that important in 1066, even though she's been dead for 14 years? She's the only woman in the book, I think, who links all three nations because mm. she's Emma of Normandy, so she was born and raised in Normandy. She married Ethelred II of England at around the turn of the millennium, 1000 or 1002 AD, and her name was changed to Elfkipa, although everybody still seems, most people still call her Normandy, Emma of Normandy. Nobody calls her Elfkipa of Normandy, it's Emma of Normandy. And um, she had a bit of a hard time with Ethelred because the Vikings were raiding all the time. Ethelred, not the strongest king in the, you know, he, he had a few issues, bless him. He just couldn't hold on to his country all the time. He got kicked out at one stage in 1014 and we had a Danish king, Swain Forkbeard, who then died after six weeks and Ethelred managed to negotiate his return by sending his eldest son by Emma, Edward, over to England to negotiate with the Witten. And Edward was only a teenager at the time. He was about 12 or 13. And they told Ethelred, yes, you can come back so long as you don't act like you did before, as long as you act as a better king. And he came back and two years later, he dies in 1016. And then in 1017, Canute becomes king of England and he's Swain Fortbeard's son. And he's been fighting Ethelred's son, Edmund Ironside, and they'd had this deal, which bloody stupid deal, if you ask me, which was whichever one died first, the other one would inherit the whole of England. So whichever one died, popped his clogs first would give the rest of the country, his share of the country, to the other one. And suddenly Edmund Ironside pops his clogs and he's like, ah, you might have been the one who acted just a little bit quicker than Edmund in killing off his, his rival. So then can you there in 1017, 1016, 1017, King of England, but he's a Danish king. And yes, he's been in England a few times before. He was in England when his dad died. But the Witten, the English didn't choose him at that time to be king. They chose, they'd rather have Ethelred back, which is how much they didn't rate Canute. So he decided that actually it might be an idea that he gets Emma on side. She knows the English court. She knows the movers and shakers. And she could sort of smooth the way for him. And I think she probably made him make a deal where he said, where she said, I'll become your queen so long as you don't go after my sons. Because mm. her two sons, Edward and Alfred, were in Normandy at the time. Can you did have a bit of a reputation about going after the children. Edmund Einside's two sons were sent to Sweden by Canute with orders to the Swedish king to kill them. Luckily, the Swedish king decided he'd just send them further on and actually sent them to Kiev where they were raised in exile, basically. So it wouldn't have been beyond belief if Canute had sent a death squad to Normandy to get rid mm. of Edward and Alfred. So... It seems likely that Emma made a deal with Canute, whereby he left her sons alone, so long as she married him and helped him 
with England and smoothed the way for him. And he trusted her. She held the treasury for England. You know, she looked after the treasury. She seems to have been a very capable woman. She she didn't get one with uh, one of her sons either, though, did she? Edward the Confessor, who was her eldest son, he seems to have blamed her an awful lot. We don't know exactly what happened with Alfred. Alfred received a letter from his mum saying, come to England with an army and you can take the crown, supposedly from his mum. And he did. He got captured, blinded and killed, basically. So there's this suggestion that Emma might have actually sent this letter and trapped her son. But it also may be that the letter was sent by somebody wanting to blame Emma, wanting to get Alfred into England so they could kill him. I don't know what happened exactly there. It puts Emma in a bad light, basically. And um, I think a lot of it is you find in history that if there's a suggestion that the woman was bad or naughty, Mm. that is what they're going to go with. Yeah. If it could be that it was Alfred's death was in the time of Harold Harefoot. And if you're going to blame, if there's a bloke to blame or the woman to blame, the tradition throughout history is blame the woman. Yeah. So, and you see that every single time. If it could have been Harold's fault or it could have been Emma's fault, it will be Emma's fault. Mm. The, you can't always tell the definite and you have to try and just take away that misogyny bias before anything. And it probably wasn't Emma's fault. I can't see her entrapping her son like that. It wasn't in her best interest in any way anyway. Especially when she kept tried to keep them alive during Knut's yeah, lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. She made this deal to keep them alive. So why yeah. would she then risk everything and have him come over to England when she knew it wasn't safe? It wasn't prime time for them to reclaim the throne. Mm. So I don't see why they would. Emma's interesting because, like Alfred the Great, she's left her own record, basically. Yes, um, she had the Emma Encomium written to tell her side of the story. I mean, what an idea. Actually have somebody write your story down and so you can put... And in that, she's like, no, I didn't send the letter. Mm. So she's, she's putting her side of the story and setting things straight, which is absolutely fantastic. But you still have to look at, she's biased as well. She's, Absolutely. You know, she, yeah. So it's really, it's, it's just one of those things. It's just really hard. You just have to find a middle road through it and go, mm. yeah, she's going to say she's fantastic. So she was probably all right. <laughs> and it's great to have her point of view. You know, we don't get that very often. You don't get women's voices in history. You have to find no. them and mm. work out what their voices were. Whereas at least we do have Emma's voice. Yeah, I mean, even if it's not all true, it's what she wanted to be left of her. At least we can say that. Yeah, so exactly. Which is, I mean, most women, we don't have even what how they want to be remembered. Yeah. At least with Emma, we have how she wanted to be remembered. Yeah. How did Emma's role change after she became Queen Mother? <laughs> Poor Emma, when she became Queen Mother. Edward didn't think Emma had done enough for her English sons when she was Queen Canute's Queen. Um, he blamed her an awful lot. And I do wonder sometimes whether he was just being a spoiled brat because she did make sure he was safe. Yes, she wasn't there. Everybody says that Hartha Canute, her Danish son, was her favourite. I'm not sure he was. I just think he was the one she'd managed she'd been able to raise herself, mm-hmm. you know, and look after. So but we don't know how much she missed Edward and Alfred. But she did, yeah, 
Edward blamed her an awful lot. Once he became king, the first thing he did was take the treasury from her that she'd been looking after under Canute and under Arthur Canute. He rode to Winchester and took the treasury back and um, basically placed her under house arrest. Um, there is a story, but it's later, um, from William of Malmesbury, which is that she was accused of adultery with a bishop and had to walk over hot coals to prove her innocence. Hmm. And she did it, and she proved her innocence. The idea is you, your feet burn, they're wrapped up for a few days, uh, and then when they're unwrapped, if they're not festering, you're innocent. If they're, if they're infected, you're guilty. But she proved herself innocent in the story. But, like I say, it was women, William of Malmesbury wrote that, and that was 100 years later. And there's no actual suggestion from the time itself that she was ever accused of adultery or walked over hot coals or hot plowshares or whichever story you read. So, But, yeah, most of the time she did come to court um, a few times during Edward's reign, but most of the time she lived quietly. I'm not, so, I'm not sure that wasn't more of a choice anyway, because I think after the life she'd led, a little bit of peace and quiet and staying out of the limelight might have actually suited her finally, because she'd done so much and been central to... It was she who formulated the first half of the 11th century. You know, she... She epitomised it. She had been Queen of Ethelred. She'd been there in every bit of the political and unrest and destabilisation and restabilisation. She'd been there. Mm. She'd been Queen of England for all that time under different kings. Yeah. So she epitomised as the first half of the 11th century. That's why she had to be in the book, you know, because although she wasn't there in 1066... It's her story that actually makes 1066 happen. If it wasn't yeah. for Emma, I'm not sure it would have happened. Emma's such a strong queen. She kind of outshines the men in her life a lot. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I always think that changes after 1066 and the Normans take over. They don't, they don't really appreciate women as much as Anglo-Saxons did. That no, definitely no. changed. Yes, they do have a different attitude to women than Normans. Although Matilda of Flanders is seen as a strong queen, she's the template for how queens acted after her. Women in Anglo-Saxon England could hold land in their own name. They could issue charters and things like that. And after the conquest, they were a lot more restricted in what they could do in the lands they could own. They could own land as a widow. Hmm. But as a single woman, you know, just somebody's daughter, they couldn't. And if they did, if land belonged to them, they were held in, the girl The girl was in wardship until she was married and then the land went to her husband and he was the one who administered it. And so it was only when she became a widow that she actually had any power over her own property and her own life, which does make you wonder why any woman would ever remarry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's one woman later on, I think it's Isabella of Gloucester, who, after her second husband, Geoffrey de Mandeville, died, she actually signs a charter in my free widowhood. <laughs> she's finally free. Then she gets married again, but not of her choice she's told to marry. And women were, they did have a harsher time in the con- after the conquest. They found their ways, you know, they, they did find ways to exert their influence. 
because even women who their lands were once they married the lands belonged to their husbands you see it with the warrens gundrada de warren who's in silk and the sword she inherits land from her brother Frederick in Norfolk. And it's only after she dies that William de Warren takes full ownership of it and administration of it. Until she dies, she has a big say in how it's managed, in what in the buildings that are done on it. She decides on the building of Castle Acre Castle and the Priory. She in the charters that found Castle Acre Priory and St Pancras Priory at Lewis, um, the two big foundations that the Warrens did, they're in William and Gundrada's name, not just William's name. So I think as husbands who knew how things were supposed to be, did acknowledge when their money and power came from their wives. You know, if they... If they were confident in themselves, then they could feel free to acknowledge that the marriage was a partnership and their wives had, you know, that had brought something to the marriage rather than were just silent partners sort of thing. So they could, they would actually acknowledge them. Um, One of the women who is a massive landowner, or you think she might have been a massive landowner in the book is Lady Godiva. I think her story is amazing because before I read your book, I knew that the tale of Lady Diva, she mm-hmm. was naked on a horseback to, like, um, is it Coventry? Yeah. Marketplace. But that's all, you know, but she was more than that, wasn't she? She was so much more than that and probably didn't even do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't see. The legend is that she, the, the people of Coventry are taxed too high. Godiva goes to her husband and says, you're taxing the people of Coventry too high. So he turns around and says, ride naked through Coventry and I'll reduce the taxes. Her husband's a null, so he'd want his wife to be seen by the plebs naked <laughs> riding through Coventry, and then he'd reduce the taxes. That just doesn't sound, you know, a, nobody wants their wife to be seen like that, and no. the wife wouldn't want to be seen like that either, so... It's a great story, but I'm not sure how much truth is in it. I think it's more likely that it's come out of um, her going on pilgrimage. Mm. Because when women went on pilgrimage, they went in a state of undress, which doesn't mean they're undressed. It just means they're not in their finery, you know. Or there might be women who were doing penance would be in their underwear. But ladies, fine ladies, it would just mean that they didn't have jewellery on, they didn't have an overdress on, you know, they were just in their everyday clothing. And I think mm. Like a gym gear, basically, as yeah. opposed to your Sunday best. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> your hoodie, your, your sweatpants. Yeah. You're slumming about, yeah, you know, you're, yeah. when you're having a pyjama day, that's probably what she was wearing. <laughs> yeah, these are my apartment pants. These are my exactly. pilgrimage pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but... I mean, she was an incredibly, from what we can tell, she was a powerful landowner in her own right. She had a lot of land in, I think it was northwest Mercia. She had some links to Lincolnshire. And just down the road from me, there's a gorgeous church called Stowe, Stowe St. Mary, the churches. And it is stunning. And she co-founded it with her husband. This woman, she would have been a really powerful woman because of all the land she held in her own right. You know, same thing with her husband. It would have been a partnership rather than bossing him around. Those lands were hers and were passed on to her son. But she just, and she founded monasteries and gave money to the church, supported her grandsons, um, Edwin and Marco, when they became earls. 
and she was the grandmother of Harold II's queen, Edith, who'd already been queen in Wales. To, she'd been married to a Welsh king before Harold, so you know she she would have she would have been a mover and shaker just as much as Emma was. She she would have known everybody in Mercia, but I don't think she would have ridden naked through a town. Yeah, so Game of Thrones got it wrong then. It's so um, funny. Um, I think it's Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem about it, and um, it's funny when you actually look at the story as it changes through history, and it's like Chinese whispers. Um, in the 15th, in the 16th century, this chap named Peeping Tom appears in the stories because everybody now has been told to look away and not see her ride naked. But this Peeping Tom turns around and looks, and because he's looked, his eyes fall out, and many <laughs> dead. <laughs> it's just like everybody, every generation puts their own morals on the story. Yeah, you can see that in things like Disney films and stuff. When yeah. you when you read the originals, you're like, oh right, okay, that's not the same story. Absolutely not the same story. No, exactly, and it's just it's just the same with stories from history. People, you do have to remember. I tend to blame the Victorians a lot because they certainly put their morals on history. They did an awful lot of work in history, and some of the work is brilliant because there's so many chronicles and things that were translated at that time. But you look at their interpretations of history. And it's this very great man theory, you know, Richard the Lionheart is absolutely wonderful because he was a soldier and a warrior. And um, women, naughty women like Emma of Normandy get played down and accused of adultery and things like that because they were naughty, because they were women who asserted themselves and asserted their own power. And women in Victorian times weren't supposed to do that. So... You, you know, you look at the their histories and it's like, all oh, right, yes, this is your morals, not the morals from the 11th century. This is 19th century morals. And you have to remember that whenever you're right, reading history books. Now you have to as well. Anything written now will is influenced by the Me Too movement, especially when you're writing about yeah. mis- misogyny is such a high profile at the minute and everybody's looking at things through those glasses. So when you read history books about women now, you have to... Remember that we're, we're moralising based on our current morals, like the Victorians did it on theirs. Yeah, because sometimes we can go a wee bit too far. But I've seen a couple of queens who did really horrific things and people are praising them and you're like, well, if that mm-hmm. was a man, you wouldn't be praising them. You're only no. praising them because they're a woman. does not make sense. Somebody say Eleanor of Aquitaine was the first feminist or <laughs> Anne Boleyn. No, neither of them were. They didn't no. live with feminist attitude that feminist attitudes were a long way away mm. they did break the mold of their generations but they did it based on their time not ours especially with, with Eleanor as well you think how many women were doing the same thing we just don't know about it mm. as well so well yeah that's true I mean they talk about that Eleanor went on crusade on the second crusade with her King Louis and it was a scandal because women didn't go on crusade nobody says that when Eleanor of Castile went on crusade with Edward I 200 years later no mm. scandal about it then and how many women went on crusade during that time because Eleanor didn't go on her own she took a load of women with her exactly and, uh, you just wonder it was it wasn't really a scandal at the time because nobody turned around and said to her don't go you're not going you've got to stay at home mm. you know, she went <laughs> I mean women are were around battles, like you said earlier, Edith Swanick was at the battle, women were there, they're just not talked about at all. Can you tell us the story about Edith and Harold? 
they, they always come across as a love story, Edith. And they do. Probably because she was at the battlefield at the end. So mm. she, she stayed loyal to him even after he married someone else. So, but yes, they seem to have met when he was in probably in his late teens. From what we can tell, they had lands next door to each other in East Anglia. And they had something like, oh, I can't remember how many children it is, about eight children, five sons and three daughters, something like that. And they were together 20 odd years. So it was, whether or not it was love or practicality, it was a handfast marriage rather than a church marriage. And you do wonder if Harold hadn't done that based on thinking, you know, I'm not an earl yet, so I'm, I'm with you for now. But if something better comes along, you know, I can get out of it easily, which he did, but he didn't, you know, he did marry somebody else, but he did look after his sons, you know, he raised them to be warriors. She was with him on that last day on the battlefield. She and his mother were waiting at the rear of the army for the outcome of the battle, probably expecting that he'd win. Mm. I don't think he'd have taken his mother and his first wife with him to the battle if he thought it was going to be such a disaster. But we know she was at the battle because she is the one who supposedly identified Harold's body by marks on his body that only she would know. What those marks are, we don't know. I'm guessing it's either tattoos or a birthmark somewhere. But if it was a birthmark, his mother would know it as well. And his mother was there, but it says that Edith is the only one who knows. So maybe he put had a secret love tattoo done, you know, a heart with I heart Edith or something. <laughs> that has to be the story. He's going to say that now, you know, 20 years down the line, he's going to be, oh, yes, there was this <laughs> I heart Edith on, the, on his body. And it's like, oh, God, I was the one who said that. <laughs> I don't know if there was, a, but I'm just saying some kind of um, mark, like a tattoo or something or a scars, maybe that she knew and nobody else did. So she could identify the body. It's just heart-wrenching to think that she's walking through this battlefield, dead everywhere, looking for Harold to identify his body and to try and get his body released to her so she could have been buried. We don't know where Harold's buried. There's so many stories. William supposedly ordered that he'd be buried on the beach in an unmarked grave, which sounds a bit unfeasible to me because burying somebody on a beach, you know... If we look at the erosion that sea causes yeah. now, they're going to reappear. Or buried on the cliff above the sea, maybe. Or Githa, Harold's mother, offered his waiting gold to take his body and bury it at Waltham Abbey. And the monks from Waltham Abbey actually put in their chronicle that they had buried Harold. And there is a stone there saying that he was buried there and the, the, where the supposed grave is. But we just don't know. But we know Edith found him and... Githa was with her and um, I mean poor Githa that day she'd already lost her son Tostig hmm. at Stamford Bridge three weeks before on the actual day of the Battle of Hastings she lost Harold two other sons and possibly a grandson and it's just like so much to take in such a short time yeah and Githa was the one who surprised me when I was writing Silk and the Sword she took over. She's probably, I think she's the longest chapter in there. And she took over the story. I used, I'd walk downstairs in the morning going, right, I am going to get Githa done today. And I'd write another <laughs> 2,000 words. And she'd still be still there. Because <laughs> she was so much. She was Harold's mother and Countess of Wessex. And, you know, she'd had five sons herself. And 
even when Harold was dead, she continued the fight with her grandsons, Harold's sons by Edith Swanneck, raised rebellion uh, Exeter in 1068 so she was you know she was still fighting even though her son was dead she was still giving it a good one um, until she did finally leave and settle in Flanders I think it was but then she was arranging her granddaughter's marriage to the Prince of Kiev she was such an active person she was incredible and you don't hear a lot about her actually like she's not really mentioned a lot in any no that's what surprised me because when I Plan Silk and the Sword, I thought Emma's going to be the central character. Yeah. She's going to be the one who I was expecting her to be the main focus of the book. And when it came round to it, Emma, she is a big central character. Mm. But Githa was just, she just came out of nowhere. And this, this woman was incredible. You know, her brother was married to King Canute's sister. So she was part of the royal family. On the peripheral, but she was part of the royal family and she had mm. all these sons. Her eldest son, Swain, was, oh God, he was a real terror. You know, he kidnapped nuns and raped them. He accused his mum of having an affair with Canute and claimed that he was Canute's son, not Godwin's son. And then she had a Harold and Tostig who were arguing all the time. And you just feel for this woman. She had so much yeah. going on in her life. She still carried on fighting, even after she'd lost three sons on one battlefield. She kind of reminds me of Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's got that yeah. same energy. She's just in the background, so it was really nice to be able to tell her story and to bring her into the limelight, where usually she, she isn't. Nobody thinks about her. How did Edith's life change after William became king? Edith Swanneck. Mm-hmm. We don't know. She just disappears from the record. Her, her lands are in the Doomsday Book. It may be that she went abroad into exile or she may have died shortly after. Her sons carried on fighting, but it was Githa who was supporting, who was encouraging them rather than Edith. She just fades away. We don't actually know what happened to her when she died or anything. And you get that with a lot of women that you don't hear about when they died. It's just they probably died before, after a certain charter, the last charter that we've got that they issued, which is what we have with Godiva, or before somebody else uses their lands. So we don't have exact dates and things, but we do know her daughters, one of them married a Prince of Kiev, and another one was in a nunnery at the time of the conquest, probably not as a nun, but rather for security. A lot of noble women went and sheltered in nunneries until the conquest was decided basically and then she she ran off from the nunnery with a chap from Brittany can't remember whether it's Fred or Alan the Black two two blokes two brothers with the same first name one was red and one was black when the first one died she she went off with the second one and she ended up her one her grandson is buried in Lincoln Cathedral they've got the record of his tombstone but they haven't got but they don't know where the grave is anymore. But it's like you look at the lineage and it's like, oh, he's her grandson. So he's Harold and Edith's great-grandson. Yeah. And he died as a child in the reign of William Rufus. He was a ward of William Rufus. Well, we like Lincoln Cathedral. <laughs> we do. Don't we? Yeah, we do. 1066 begins with a death and a coronation and then it ends the same way with William's coronation mm-hmm. day. How was the day? Was any, was everybody happy? Was it like King Charles recently? 
Well, Harold II's coronation was rather hasty because Edward the Confessor died, I can't remember whether it was the 5th or 6th of January, and Harold was crowned the next day. Doesn't sound like there's much pomp. It's like get the crown on his head and secure the mm. throne rather quickly. William the Conqueror's coronation was a little more awkward. It was more magnificent. It was in Westminster Abbey. It was full of English and Norman nobles, and there were soldiers outside. And when the crown was put on his head, the crowd inside the cathedral erupted in cheers. Um, unfortunately, the soldiers outside thought that that meant everybody was killing each other. <laughs> they started attacking the crowd outside and burning the buildings. When the conqueror comes out with a crown on his head, going, "What the? What is going on here?" <laughs> so we shouldn't laugh, really, should we? Because they were killing people. But it just—it's just one of those misunderstandings. Do you think that was a cultural thing? Possibly. I think everyone was on edge. Mm. You know, they were expecting, probably expecting something to happen. So they were ready for it and they heard it and they thought, ah, that's it. That's the, you know. So I think just everybody was on edge. It was all very new. Then, yes, the English nobles had sworn allegiance to William the Conqueror out of necessity and survival instinct rather than anything else. So, and there were rebels still around, although mm. they were men in the Isle of Ely at that time. Because it was, um, it's Fenland, so they could hide away there and it would take the Normans a while to get to them. There were rebellions for the next few years. You know, you had the harrying of the North in 1068 and the Danes as well arrived in 1068. And you had Edwin and Morcar, the Earls of Northumbria and Mercia, rebelling a couple of times. And there was still Edgar the Athling, who was Edward the Confessor's nephew, who could claim the throne. There was a lot going on, so you can understand how tense and nobody actually knowing who their friends were, who was going to rebel. And there was a rebellion of the earls as well. It wasn't a quick conquest. So there was there was a while when things were unsettled. I mean, Matilda of Flanders wasn't crowned until 1068 because William wanted to make sure everything was settled before he invited, got his wife to come over to England. And as it was, once she had her coronation, he had to send her back to Normandy because there was another rebellion around. They have the most interesting proposal. They're kind of up there with Edward and Elizabeth Woodville, actually. William and Malmesbury, again, he, he's a right storyteller and he just doesn't actually check out his facts. But supposedly, William proposed to Matilda Flanders and she turned around and said, I'm not marrying him, he's illegitimate and he's way below me. So he apparently got on his horse, rode over to Flanders and attacked her, basically pulled her pigtails, threw her on the floor and kicked her, after which she said, OK, I'll marry you. So the girl would do that, wouldn't she? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, do you know that, um, would they tell girls, or they used to tell girls, oh, if a boy pulls your hair, they'll like, they'll like you. <laughs> he Is likes... that kind of a vibe? <laughs> Yeah, that's probably where it comes from. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but Matilda Flanders was she was the granddaughter of a king of France. There's no way William the Conqueror is going to go and attack the granddaughter of his liege lord. He owed allegiance to the king of France, so he's not going to do that. And besides, the actual negotiations for the marriage took a couple of years. The papacy get, kept getting involved and saying that they were too closely related to marriage. And so in the end, they actually married before they got approval from the Pope and they got told off for it and um, told to pay a penance, which is why there's two monasteries in Cannes 
the Abbey Zom and the Abbey Dam, which is the Abbey Dam, the Abbey of the Ladies, is the one that Matilda paid to have built, and the Abbey Zom, the Abbey of the Men, is the one William paid to have built in penance for the fact they got married without papal permission. It's like his and hers monasteries. <laughs> Most people get towels, they get monasteries. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a great story that he wrote, that he kicked and punched her and pulled her pigtails and then she agreed to marry him. Well, I doubt there's even an element of truth in it. I don't think so. There's also the story about her height. There's, um, there was a suggestion that she was a dwarf and apparently it comes from the fact that when, during the French Revolution, her tomb was ransacked and the bones scattered bones they managed to find they reburied and then they were examined by doctors in the I can't remember when it was 1950s I think they used the thigh bone to estimate her height and one of the reporters reporting on this misunderstood what was said and deduced that she was a dwarf of about four foot when you actually look at the original report of what was said she was about five foot French doctor said if she'd been a dwarf she couldn't have had ten full height children by I mean William the Conqueror was full height as well so it would have been really difficult for her to have children if she'd been a dwarf going you know I'm five foot well five two I always gave myself an extra two inches when I was pregnant I was under a consultant because of my height because if you're sure you have narrow hips so childbirth is more difficult and she still managed it 10 times so I'm like good on her I did it once and never again <laughs> but yeah that's where it comes from somebody misreporting what had been said when they were examining her bones but it wasn't oh. the people who'd examined the bones it was a reporter who wasn't listening properly or something when they did it I can't imagine them not discussing that in the chronicles no exactly they yeah. would have said something yeah but nobody did but they actually had like a really good marriage. Yeah, they had a very good marriage. He was with her when she died and they they spent as much time together as possible mustard on their ten kids. <laughs> <laughs> she gave him a ship to his flagship for the invasion was provided by her. She looked after Normandy while he was in England. Um yeah, they seem to have had a perfect partnership. The only oil in the ointment was their eldest son, Robert, who didn't get on with William, but was a bit of a mummy's boy. So, But I think all her sons were mummy's boys, actually. None of her sons married while she was still alive. That would do it. That would do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds yeah. a little bit Hanoverian, except yeah. in reverse, because you had, remember Gemma, Gemma and I did several <laughs> episodes on this. So in Hanoverians, you had the uh, the dislike for the eldest child, Yes. Who probably in all likelihood will be king. And then you had all these princesses, especially with George III, who mm. weren't married while their father was still sane yeah. slash alive. I do think um, it was probably, you know, no no girl was good enough for her boys. <laughs> I mean, I understand that. I have two boys. I, I get that. I totally get that. <laughs> Can you tell us about the other books you have out? Because they're all about other medieval women. I've got five out, and one. my next one is out in January, um, which is Women of the Anarchy. Concentrates on Empress Matilda and Queen Matilda of Boulogne. And that was quite a surprise, actually, because there's a period in... The Anarchy is about 19 years long, but there's a period in 1141 that's actually called the War of the Two Matildas, because Mat the Empress and Queen Matilda were at the heads 
of the two armies that were fighting because King Stephen was had been captured and Queen Matilda took over the reins until Stephen was freed. And it's like, there's a war of the two Matildas. This is fantastic. <laughs> the first time ever I've ever found where two women are at the head of the opposing armies. So it was a fascinating period to write about. That was actually my fifth book, but the publication was delayed. So it came, it's come out after my sixth book, which was um, King John's Right Hand Lady, the story of Nicola de la Haye. I mean, Nicola de la Haye, she's my hero. She's amazing. Defended Lincoln Castle against everyone and um, was the first ever woman to become a sheriff in England in her own name. So I try and write about incredible women who broke the conventions of the time and she's the one who did it best for me. And I'm currently writing Scotland's Medieval Queens. Oh, that's due into my publishers um, on the 1st of January. So that's the one I'm really squirreling away at at the minute. And I've just been doing Amonto Margaret, Henry III's daughter, who married Alexander III. And I've just done Marie de Cousy and um, Joan of England and St. Margaret's in it. Um, yeah. That one was, it's my son's fault I'm doing that, actually, because he did Macbeth at GCSE. And he came out one day and said, Mum, you really need to write about Lady Macbeth. Shakespeare <laughs> did a real number on her, and it's not fair. The prologue of the book is Lady Macbeth, and then I go on to St Margaret and the rest of them. But, yeah, it's been, it's, I love Scottish history. I mean, I'm a big fan. Yeah, we love that. In yeah. fact, actually, the idea for a podcast grew, for, for us to do it with Gemma, uh, grew out of an idea of a book club remember yeah and the first book we were gonna cover which we still haven't but we are going to it's on the list it's on the trello yeah was actually the scottish queens funny that it was rosalind something uh author yeah that's the one that's the one that's the one yeah but she doesn't have an awful lot on the medieval queens in there she doesn't Um, no no she she gets through them pretty quickly which was disappointing for me because it's like it would have been ever so handy if she'd had more information on them yeah Yeah. she probably was born she may have died okay the next one yeah thank you (laughs) exactly she hasn't left a lot of records like oh great (laughs) (laughs) she may have been a person (laughs) <laughs> there are a few like that she may have existed and she may not have done she may have luckily, had long hair luckily the um there are a lot of scottish chronicles on archive.org mm. it takes a little finding the queens in there but they are in there and the finding is because of the spellings like joanna um of england is joan joanna johanna and if you look for queen, then there's a few different spellings of queens as well, which yeah. sometimes has a W in it instead of a U. And an E-N-E instead of an E-E-N <laughs> takes forever to find them. And then you think you've found the right person and it turns out to be somebody completely different. <laughs> yeah. And the worst thing is they named them the same. It's the same name again and again and again. Yeah. They just never think of a different name. Well, uh, I had that. I was writing about Alexander II and it turned out the um, the chronicle I was using was talking about Alexander III and it's like, oh, great. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll paste that into the next chapter. <laughs> but it's fun. I'm really enjoying doing it. I love Scottish history. So it's, there's no chore there. It's just it's great to be able to find these snippets of information and actually find the bits that actually mention 
the queens rather than just you know going oh she might have been here and it's like no she was look she was there yeah. <laughs> somebody just mentioned her the thing about the earliest uh Scottish kings as well half of the time they're not even mentioned sometimes mm. it's like yeah they, maybe he was a king he could have been a king he might yeah. have been a king we know his name he might have been a king or he might mm. have been this other person what lesson from history would you like everybody to learn don't repeat it I have a feeling nobody's going to learn that well, one day one day I don't know I think um, that everybody has a bias when you're reading history just remember, everybody has a bias. Everybody, whatever story they're telling, it's what they want you to know and not necessarily the truth. So you have to look deeper. And yeah. women were there. They just didn't write about them. I love that. What is your favourite castle? Honisborough. Because I grew up around the corner from it and... When we went on holiday uh, and we were coming home, if you saw Conisbra Castle, you knew you were five minutes from home. So it's <laughs> always been a part of my life. Do you, you have one up in Scotland now that you're doing Scottish history? Scotland, Carlaverock. Oh, really? Really. Oh, I, I love that I was one. About, yeah, I saw it when I was about 16. We spent a day at Carlaverock and I have never forgotten that castle. I just thought it was incredible, the triangular shape of it and, yeah. the, and the story about it, yeah. I like the fact that the, the old one's just a step away. Do you have one in Wales? We don't want to leave the Welsh out. Wales, I think, would be Carnarvon. It's such an incredible fortress. Unfortunately, it was built by Edward I to subjugate the Welsh, but then most of the castles in Wales were. <laughs> Who was your favourite medieval woman to write about? Nicola de la Haye. I've, I've enjoyed writing about everybody I've written about, except Joan of Arc was difficult because I was trying to write her story without having a prejudice. Because when you read about Joan of Arc, most of the time people talk about mental illness mm. and that she was hearing voices rather than being visited by saints. And I tried to keep, I wanted to keep that out of her story because mm. by the time she was around, that wasn't part of it. You know, she was hearing voices from saints as far as she was concerned and I wanted to get across exactly what she managed to achieve at mm -hmm. such a young age she managed to get a king crowned that was I enjoyed writing her story but I found it a lot of pressure to get that right and to give her some justice in her own story yeah I think that's when you you have all the saints and now you're kind of putting that modern label of yes. mental illness just because they it's written that they were hearing voices. Maybe mm. they felt like they were hearing some kind of a message. Do you know that we were, you know, some people think if they see a feather, it's a message from their loved mm. one in heaven kind of a thing. Maybe it was that kind of thing. It was maybe yeah. rather than actually hearing a voice. It inspired her mm -hmm. to go to the Dauphin and to promise to make him king and to fulfil that promise and to lead the French armies against the English and defeat them. I mean... To actually, however she did it, she did it. She did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure you have seen the whole princes in the tower thing. What mystery from history would you like to have solved? Actually, I'll go with the Scottish. Hey, eh? Robert the Bruce, and what made him find the way to fight back? Because when you think about it, he had his 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 wife and his sisters imprisoned by Edward the First and his daughter. And I know there's the story of the cave and watching the spider work and work. And But what actually did persuade him that he could carry on fighting and that he could actually achieve the impossible and defeat the English? Uh, I'm going to say it was a spider because 
We actually watched the film Robert Lebris, not the one with Chris Pine. Really, mm. really good. You should watch it. I can't remember who's in it. Angus McFadden. Uh, it's the I same think. dude who played the same role in Braveheart, I think. Outlaw King. And that was good. I yeah, liked Chris Pine. Robert the Bruce, but the one thing about Bruce's story that you think you can't ignore is the influence of the women because he had so many women around him, his wife, his daughter, his sister, Isabel Buchan, who actually suffered an awful lot because of their support of him. And yeah, they put Elizabeth, his wife, in, but all the others they just ignored, more or less. The women were so much a part of that story and they just got written out of it. No, definitely. I'm, I'm actually like wondering what they're going to do with the Conqueror one that's coming out soon. Yes. I'm, I'm kind of wondering yeah. what they're going to do I'm for the women. I'm hoping that they've got my book. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Vikings Valhalla is historically probably the most inaccurate series I've ever watched. <laughs> But they at least have the women in there. You know, well, Emma true. Normand is in there and yeah. El- Mistress Elfgiver. They change the story an awful lot and have Emma killing people, but at least she's in there. She's there. That's fine. <laughs> she made an appearance. Yes. They've got TV shows about medieval history. I'm not going to complain. Yeah. Not when you weigh all those ones they've had on the Tudors this year. Oh, um, my God. Oh, God, I don't know. time we do medieval. Definitely. Stick to the Scottish. We'll have more Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> Back Chris Pine, and he can also be William the Conqueror. He can be Alexander the Third this time. He can be. A- I'm alright anyway. with that. Yeah. He can be Macbeth. In fact, that I, I want that. <laughs> I would love that. I would love like a real Macbeth story. Yes. With that Chris Pine. Yeah. With Chris Pine. Okay, we'll have Chris Pine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that'd be really good. Remember, we were talking about uh, Richard the Third and how he's been his whole character now we know because of Shakespeare or we think mm. we know because of Shakespeare and it's the same with Macbeth people yeah. only know Shakespeare's Macbeth they don't know the real Macbeth so I yeah. think it'd be really interesting I think, I think it's worse with Shakespeare as well with um, Richard III you do have the balance now and we have a lot of sources and chronicles from the time that tell mm. us about Richard III whereas with Macbeth there's less information out there in the play, it's like Lady Macbeth pushes him to murder Duncan, pushes him. She's the ambitious one. And is that when you actually read about her story? You can't get too much of the woman in there, but there's nothing about ambition in there. They just, he married her and raised her son, who was her son by another man, and made him his heir. You know, yeah. they were, they seem to have been a very affectionate couple and a very close family. And it's like, but she's the one pushing him and then kills herself in madness because they've done all this bad thing. And it's like, no, he killed, possibly killed her husband. We don't know for definite. But at the same time, her husband had killed his dad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were very violent people, as far as. Yeah. <laughs>
He would get privacy that way. Maybe that's the only way he can get privacy. Maybe. He wants privacy, but he also wants the attention. I don't think he would last five minutes in medieval world. I really don't. He would have an absolute breakdown. Uh, somebody would have strangled him. Not one of the kings would have put up with him as a younger brother. <laughs> He'd have been no. drowned in a bat of Malmsey wine. <laughs> you could say Josh Duke of Clarence. <laughs> or just imprisonment in Cardiff Castle. I think that's an that's option. If you want privacy, don't come out that room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Prince of Wales, but you're going to be in Wales. <laughs> you're the prisoner of Wales, okay? Yeah. Here are your three feathers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I hope you'll come on and speak to us when you have your book out about Scottish Queens. Absolutely. Can't wait oh, for that. It should be out uh, January 2025. I'm, I'm looking forward to the Anarchy book as well in January. So where can people find you? I have my own blog, historytheinterestingbits.com, which has been going now for, oh, it'll be eight years in January. I'm on Facebook, there's Sharon Bennett Connolly, Twitter, as the history bits uh, same with instagram i'm on threads i'm on blue sky i get everywhere <laughs> so i do a podcast a uh, slice of medieval with a novelist derek burks so we do history facts and fictions things you know discuss the fiction of some of the stories and the facts behind them oh definitely give that a listen well thank you so much and for the great time talking to you thank you yeah um, i've really enjoyed it it's been lovely thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of if it ain't baroque podcast please like subscribe and share with your friends with Gemma and myself you can find us on social media the handle is at if it ain't baroque podcast on instagram and if it ain't baroque history on tiktok the website is ifitainbaroque.art. And if you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, please check out reinoflondon.com. Thank you so much and see you next time.